0: Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry.
1: Medical and societal advancements have significantly increased the life expectancy of those with cerebral palsy. However, there are a large number of adults with cerebral palsy who do not have access to the comprehensive medical care they need. In today's episode, we're discussing how to best serve the often underserved adult cerebral palsy community. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neurooncologist in Cleveland Clinics Neurological Institute. And joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Francois Batu. Dr. Batu is a physiatrist and chairman of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation in Cleveland Clinics Neurological Institute. Francois, welcome to Neural Pathways.
2: Uh, Thank you, Glenn. I uh, am very thankful for your invitation to discuss this topic. I always feel like we need to talk more about it and about this group of people, which uh, is very significant in our community, yet certainly underserved and also not well known, actually, by all of the citizens of this country. So to get things started... Uh, why don't you tell us briefly what cerebral palsy
1: is, so we're all on the same footing, and what types of problems uh, we see with patients with cerebral palsy?
2: So you're already asking me a trick question, <laughs> because there is actually not a straightforward definition of cerebral palsy. Everybody acknowledges it's a group of disorders, but they have something in common. It, it's that they're they're caused by either an abnormality of the brain development, so the brain doesn't develop as it should, or some damage occurring to the brain, either during, you know, in utero or uh, around the time of birth, it may actually not be diagnosed right away. It often is diagnosed a little later uh, when children fail to meet some important milestones, such as sitting up, walking, talking. And so uh, the, the hallmark of cerebral palsy or CP is is the difficulty moving. And palsy actually, You know, it means weakness uh, or difficulty using the muscles, so it makes sense. And so, you know, we may have images of uh, children, adolescents, and adults having difficulty walking, difficulty keeping their balance, difficulty using their arms and their hands. There is also uh, a potential component of intellectual disability as well in cerebral palsy.
1: So, Francois, we mentioned in the opening that we're probably doing a better job in the pediatric population with the children with cerebral palsy because that's where we're identifying it. Uh, but we have a lot of work to do at the same level of care in the adult population with cerebral palsy. In your opinion, what has worked well in the pediatric population?
2: So What I think worked well for the pediatric population is the acknowledgement that a significant number of babies were born with... Uh, damage to their brain or abnormal brain development leading to cerebral palsy. Therefore, there's been a very early stepping up in multidisciplinary care to take these uh, babies, toddlers, and, and children, giving them the best chance of avoiding complications, of having the best function and quality of life possible. You know, it, it's estimated there's about 10,000 children born with cerebral palsy every year in the U.S., And so that leads to an estimated 700,000 people living with cerebral palsy who may be children or adults, significant number. And really, there's basically two aspects to the pediatric care. One is taking care of the problems that are presenting themselves, but also the second one is giving uh, these children the best chance uh, to live a long life, to live a productive life, but also to have the greatest quality of life possible. And there seems to be a disconnect when they reach the adult age and where they transition to the adult healthcare. So
1: I'm going to throw you just a little curveball because I'm just kind of curious about the the answer to this. Is the incidence of cerebral palsy decreasing, staying the same, or improving? I would like to believe that we should see less of it as medical care gets better, but maybe it's not. Do you know?
2: I don't have the numbers precisely in my brain, but uh, what I remember from previous readings... Is that while there has been an overall decrease due to progress, you know, in uh, particularly the quality of, of delivery and care around delivery, there's also, you know, what we now call social determinants of health that have not been resolved uh, in many developed countries, including ours, and that lead to an increased incidence of cerebral palsy. So it's a mixed message there. We certainly have made progress. But uh, some of the factors are not necessarily directly medical, and society as a whole has to understand that and step up to uh, improve these numbers even more.
1: So, you know, as a neuro-oncologist, I look after patients of have neurofibromatosis, and, you know, again, a disorder that's very commonly diagnosed when individuals are children, And then get transitioned to adults. And one of the things that we see, at least in the NF population, is that the patients don't want to leave their pediatrician. Uh, You know, the patients are 40 years old and they're still being followed by the pediatrician because they followed them for years and they're comfortable with it. Uh, but it's really getting outside the realm of what's going on with the pediatricians. What about on on the adult side of things? Do you see that as well, that the pediatricians hold on to their patients or the patients don't want to leave, or is it difficult to transition the patients?
2: Yes, it is. Actually, it is. So what I've seen, again, that speaks to the fact that the pediatric world and particularly the pediatric rehabilitation world is very nurturing for these patients and their families. You know, we should never uh, forget that, the parents of these children are often very closely involved in their management, in their day-to-day life. And so they're so nurtured by a multidisciplinary team that who would want to leave, right? And so, you know, now that the Cleveland Clinic has engaged in a more active transition process that starts around age 12, 14, and is supposed to end around age 22, first you notice that we're not in a hurry to transition people when they turn 18. We give them time to prepare for that transition, and then to uh, have a successful transition to adult care. But we've seen some families, some patients, just refuse, uh, saying they're not ready. And it's scary out there. Or maybe they've tried to contact an adult provider, and things didn't work out the way they wanted. Sometimes they couldn't get scheduled with the right provider. Sometimes they came and were not impressed with uh, the understanding that the provider had of their condition and their needs. And uh, they may return or ask to return to the pediatric world.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's difficult. In a large academic center, you know, the peds people are in close proximity to the adult people or or at least fairly close. So the transition isn't so bad. But, you know, in private practice, people could be very disparate practices and it may be difficult to transition. Do you have care coordinators here that help with the transition or is it really physician to physician based?
2: So it it is Much better when we don't make it (laughs) physician-to-physician-based. It's a little bit of a joke because I have actually for years taken direct messages from some of my colleagues saying, hey, I have this 25-year-old, very nice young man or lady, and could you help with the transition? And I have. But when we want to do it on a large scale, then uh, having care coordinators on board is absolutely essential. So we have a pediatric and an adult care coordinator. They communicate with each other. We keep a running list. And we've reached out outside of our immediate circle of our health system to other pediatric CP providers, and they've expressed great interest in also kind of having us as uh, their transition facilitators.
1: And I'm sure you have a team uh, that takes care of these patients. Why don't you tell us who's on the team and what the roles of the individuals are?
2: Certainly. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to make it as similar as we can to the pediatric experience again. It's very important to understand that people with cerebral palsy uh, have a wide range of limitations and needs. You have people with cerebral palsy who have, yes, some difficulty walking, but they drive, work, they're married, they have kids, they live what we would call a normal life and very fulfilling life. We have others who are in a wheelchair and will remain in a wheelchair, may have some uh, what we call comorbidities. They may have kidney problems, heart problems and require specialized care for this, they often have uh, orthopedic problems. You can imagine that if one uh, has kind of an abnormal gait, right, and, and puts a lot of stress on their joints and their spine uh, very early in life, they may have pain, they may have early arthritis, actually. And so we try to have, of course, a lot of rehab resources, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, nursing care, Social workers, very important. Imagine the transition, maybe from living with your parents to living without the parents, but having challenges finding an accessible lodging, uh, finding work with adaptations to uh, be able to uh, work despite some limitations, and uh, making sure you have the right health care coverage, and so on and so forth. And we have psychologists, neuropsychologists, and contacts within subspecialties, such as orthopedics, such as dental care. You know, Some people with CP require full anesthesia to do their dental care. It's not easy to find a dentist who will have the facilities, uh, the, the team and the willingness to do this as well. So we try to reproduce that. And I often crack jokes uh, You know that in the pediatric world, it's very common to have an orthopedic specialist who will take care of your spine, hips, knees and feet. And then you transition to adult care. And it seems like you need to have One orthopedist for your spine and one for your hip and one for your knee and one for your foot. So we try to recreate, at least for routine management, the one-stop shopping kind of experience using more specialized practitioners when there's a need maybe for surgery or or a more difficult case. So outside of surgery,
1: what kind of medicines are we using for these patients?
2: Well, the the, the medicines used, we try to keep them down to a minimum because we don't want polymedication that can lead to other problems. But treatments for spasticity are very common in uh, individuals with cerebral palsy because their spasticity may cause them discomfort and Im- interfere with the way they want to function. They may be treatments for pain and uh, particularly for either joint pain or back pain, but also nerve pain that may be caused by the brain damage. And so uh, there are medications uh, specific for what we call neuropathic pain from the brain damage. Uh, There may be medications for bladder function, medications uh, for bowel function as well, uh, medications for depression or for anxiety. So it's the same types of medications that we would use for other disorders. I'm not aware of any medication that's specific for cerebral palsy, but we borrow from uh, other medications used for other neurological conditions to address the needs of those with cerebral palsy.
1: I remember uh, when I was uh, training in practice, you know, they used to place baclofen pumps in patients that had very bad spasticity. But my recollection, and maybe I'm wrong at the time, was that these were really patients that were bedbound bound uh, And they were trying to decrease the spasticity, the contractures, so that patients would have less pain. But I think that this has been nuanced now, and, and patients can now have a baclofen pump and still ambulate and function Uh, So it sounds like maybe you guys have come a long ways in how you titrate uh, these types of things. Can you speak on that at all?
2: The baclofen pump is is a wonderful treatment that is extremely potent to decrease spasticity, particularly in the legs. And uh, it's true that both on the pediatric and adult side, we've evolved to implant these pumps in individuals who are able to walk because we know now not to be afraid of making them lose the ability to walk because we thought we would cause too much weakness, too much relaxation, and if the legs get kind of like wet noodles, right? Well, then it's difficult to walk on them. But we've realized that if we're careful in selecting the good candidates, we can do that. And so, you know, part of the transition is to help former children who are now young adults who've had a baclofen pump for many years transition to adult care. But in some cases, actually, we've had adults with cerebral palsy get their first baclofen pump as adults because their spasticity had evolved to be bothersome at that particular age.
1: And w- won't you comment briefly about Botox use in individuals with CP?
2: Botulinum toxin therapy is also widely used in CP. Uh, the, one of the nice aspects of this therapy is that it it can be customized so, because we inject specific muscles and so we can really customize the number of muscles that are injected to the person's needs, as opposed to, say, the front pump that relaxes every muscle from the waist down. And so uh, it is very much customized, can address the upper extremities as well. It doesn't require surgery, requires injections, which, you know, uh, nobody looks forward to getting injections. And in the pediatric world, they are often are done under conscious sedation or applying some local anesthetic over the skin. And we try to transition with, again, still providing the same level of comfort if we can. And again, sometimes we start the treatment as adults. Again, this is very specific for spasticity, but spasticity affects many people with cerebral palsy. So not every
1: caregiver is near a large academic center. A lot of people will be in very small related areas. Are there good places for providers and patients alike to find resources
2: There are wonderful community resources. In our area, the most well-known is United Cerebral Palsy, uh, and they help a lot of children, families, and adults with cerebral palsy find the right providers. They also provide some services, particularly rehabilitation services, uh, but they also serve to facilitate, you know, their insertion into the community, their remaining in the community. Uh, That's one example i like to say that any provider can take care of someone with cerebral palsy. There's no special degree to have. Actually, right now, there's not really special training that is designed specifically for cerebral palsy. Uh, If there's, you know, good listening skills, a desire to help, and access to either specialized providers or, you know, good literature when needed are plenty to address this. And what we're trying to promote is a model where there may be a uh, cerebral palsy medical home, if you wish, which could be in a big academic center, realizing it's not close to everyone. But then we know that there are some physicians, some advanced practice providers who have some experience and a keen interest in helping people with cerebral palsy, then we can connect with them and direct patients and families towards them, for example. Uh, The same goes with surgeons and et cetera. So that's the way we we realize that uh, the services we may provide as a, you know, home for cerebral palsy are not the end of it. It it may actually just be the beginning. We may see people once, and then they will be referred to a provider, or their existing provider will be provided with some resources, and and then we can continue. And the uh, promotion of telehealth during the pandemic, if there's any silver lining to this pandemic, it's the, uh, the, the fact that we've all gotten comfortable to providing telehealth services, then we can stay in touch with these uh, individuals remotely and they can get their care in person uh, with their own providers in their community.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point and probably telehealth for certain types of disorders where there may not be specialists in the area uh, allows the patient to touch base with you so that then you can communicate with them as to what you feel or who you feel they should see and then they can look for that person. Uh, in their community, it always just reminds me that, once again, that we just need to listen to our patients, right? What is the patient telling us? What do they want, not what we think they want. Exactly. Uh, But what is it that they really want? What about research in the area for spasticity in general or
2: uh, cerebral palsy? Anything going on? There is actually, well, there's two ways to see it. Not enough research. We often bemoan in, in many Fields, especially in certain disorders, that there's not enough research. But actually there's, when I did my own search on Dr. Google, <laughs> uh, you know, I was pleased to find uh, more research going on than I thought. First, there is research about the needs of those with cerebral palsy, particularly adults with cerebral palsy. There's a fairly large literature on children with CP, but a, a smaller literature on adults. And, you know, we find themes that, to me, evoke missed opportunities. One, the good news is life expectancy for those with cerebral palsy has increased, but generally, you know, overall remains shorter than for those without cerebral palsy. We also find that what we call, again, comorbidities, right, all these conditions that anybody can acquire as an adult, high blood pressure, you know, obesity, heart disease, add to the risk of uh, dying prematurely, but also decrease the quality of life with those with cerebral palsy. And not surprisingly, we also find, again, health inequities uh, with minorities. So if somebody, uh, say, is African-American with cerebral palsy, they will have a higher uh, risk of mortality and a higher chance of having comorbidities. And unfortunately, uh, some of the research shows that these health needs are not really addressed in a preventative or curative manner. And so some of the research is about Demonstrating the needs so then we can get the right services. That's important. And then a lot more research to uh, try and promote more discoveries. So there's advances in genetics. So now this group of disorders that I was talking about sometimes can be actually identified as a genetic disorder. It's very important for knowledge first, but also uh, some people with cerebral palsy will have a family. They need to know uh, for their offsprings if there is a risk of actually Uh, having some issues over time. For example, there's uh, research on stem cells, and stem cells make every uh, people, you know, everybody involved with neurological disorders dream, right, of fixing the nervous system, repairing the damage even years after it occurred. So the good news is there's more and more research and uh, some promising results, particularly in animal models. Uh, We just need to be very patient because I don't think we've been able to harnessed in stem cell cells to the point that they can become routine care, and we can promise that we can restore damage and restore function as well. Uh, there's also research on the outcomes of spasticity management in cerebral palsy to find who are the best candidates, what really are, are uh, the outcomes, what, what we really provide to people who have cerebral palsy. And there's some more off-the-beaten-path interventions that can be very low-cost and very available in the community. I found a research study on the effects of dance on people with cerebral palsy. You know, I'm a healthcare provider, and we all know that there's a cost to being in healthcare and more and more a cost to patients, out of pocket costs. But there are community resources to help restore and, and, and maintain health that can be very engaging and also very easy to access and can be done in conjunction with a healthcare provider to make sure that everything goes safely.
1: I think that we're all guilty to some extent of microaggressions when we look at certain populations. I suspect that there's a number of patients that when they look at somebody with cerebral palsy, you know, they see the motor-related problem, but they assume there's also a cognitive related problem associated with it. But it doesn't have to be. What's the instance of of cognitive difficulties in patients with cerebral palsy?
2: You're you're right that there are many assumptions. And uh particularly if we see someone with a severe physical disability who may not be able to speak even, and may have difficulty controlling their limbs or in a wheelchair, we may assume that their intellectual performance is very, uh, very limited. Uh, And so in these cases, it's always good to ask. So the the numbers vary because uh, the degree of intellectual disability may vary greatly. And often, actually, it's been assessed during childhood, and we have a a very good idea when people become adults of what it is. And, and so that allows opportunities such as special education, such as access to workshops for people with limited uh, cognitive and physical abilities. But we don't want it to be a stigma, right, that we stigmatize and we say, oh, there are special services for these people and they're not like us and I'm not going to be able to communicate with them. And lo and behold, the person in the wheelchair in front of them may have a college degree and may actually uh, have a high-level IT job that they're doing. You know, maybe a researcher, maybe somebody who's very active in the community. And we will not realize that unless we give it an opportunity, unless we approach the person, ask some questions, and uh, listen, you know, listen carefully to, to the answers.
1: Well, Francois, I've really enjoyed our our talk today. Any parting tips uh, for anybody out there or areas that we've not covered that you feel would be important?
2: I'd say that, you know, do not underestimate all the needs that people with cerebral palsy have, but let's not underestimate all the opportunities we have that are not costly, not high-tech, but may really change their lives. And it always pays off to keep an open mind and... uh, be attentive to someone else's needs, but also expectations from us and from life.
1: Excellent. Well, I think uh, keeping an open mind is what we all need to do. And I really appreciate your sharing your insights uh, with myself and our group today and wish you well in your
0: practice.
2: Thank you very much. I wish you well. This concludes
0: this episode of Neuro Pathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org neuropodcast or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at cleclinicmd, all one word.